Digital Marketing Radio, episode 255. The essential skills you need to become an effective digital marketing leader. Digital Marketing Radio with David Bain. Hi, I'm David Bain and this is Digital Marketing Radio, the podcast and YouTube show for in-house agency and entrepreneurial marketers who want to stay on top of the latest tools, tactics and trends as shared by today's modern marketing masters. I remember back in 2008 when I started working full-time in a digital marketing role. It was a techie role that's liaised with techies. It wasn't real marketing. It was playing online. At least that's what many traditional marketers thought at the time. Fast forward 13 years and in many arenas, digital has overtaken traditional. And that's meant that the size of digital marketing teams has grown exponentially, which in turn draws our attention to digital marketing leadership. What are the skills you need to be an effective digital marketing leader? That's precisely what I'm going to be discussing with my guest on Digital Marketing Radio episode 255. He's a former VP of SEO and content at G2 and a current director of SEO at Shopify. Welcome to DMR, Kevin Indig. Fantastic job on the intro, David. It's been, it's a pleasure as always to be on. It's Wonderful as always to have you on, sir. Um, I'll just say you can find Kevin over at kevin-indig.com. So, so Kevin, it was you that suggested that we talk about leadership. So why is that? You know, it's interesting, David. When I look back at where I made the biggest growth in terms of learning over the last three years, it was actually more in leadership and personal development than SEO. And that's even though my profession is SEO, or I would probably say by now it's more what I call organic growth, and we can talk a bit more about that later, but um, I really spent much more time reading and learning about leadership, working with executive coaches, with, with, with trainers uh, on how to build skills. And the surprising thing about that is that it actually helped me get better at SEO as, at the same time. So by learning how to lead others, I learned how to better lead myself. So are the skills required to be a successful digital marketing leader different to the skills required to be a conventional business leader? I think so. I think it's, I think this is actually a great example. The, the, the time that we live in, uh, the pandemic that forced us to work remotely, I think that takes not a completely different skill set, but I think a, a slightly adjusted skill set compared to uh, a leader who works for a company that works predominantly in person, for example, right? Basic leadership skills are the same in, in any leadership position, right? You need uh, certain skills like directing people, motivating people, uh, the management aspect of leadership, which is not the same as leadership itself. And then I think in a digital world, there are things that you have to embrace on top of that because it's digital. And I think I want to distinguish between a, a, a software company that works predominantly in person and a software company that works remote. And I'm saying that because Shopify, the company that I work at now, made the decision to go 100% remote when the pandemic broke out. And that put us in front of new challenges. You know, How do you build the social glue and trust that is so important within teams for them to be successful and perform at a really high level? How do you um, display empathy uh, in, a, in a believable way remotely? And how do you get people on the same page and align them when you communicate predominantly through Slack and some video meetings? So I would say there are differences and it depends a little bit 
on whether you work remotely or whether you work for a digital company in person. So going, going back two years ago or so, you still would have had fairly good leadership skills. But what are the skills that you didn't have two years ago that you absolutely had to have um, for the pand- pandemic? Yeah, I think, um, you know, I, I think getting, getting people excited about a vision in this remote okay. world has a different taste to it than in the offline world. In the offline world, you know, uh, you, could, you could get everybody in a room and you could develop this kind of feeling in the room with people, that, that kind of excitement that's almost contagious. It's not contagious when everybody sits at home themselves, right? That's where you really have to home in on, um, uh, on individual motivators, right? And people have different motivators and you have to, to be more conscious of that. You have to get better at reading people remotely, uh, that's it's it's really tricky. Um, mm-hmm. There's one aspect to it in the in the video aspect, uh, or when in a video context or setting. But then, how do you read people on Slack? Can you build enough interaction, you know, with them to understand when, like, how their response is different, how that might reflect their so their 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 kind of um, their state in the moment? It's very very difficult. So, for team meetings on video, do you always insist that everyone has their camera on? I don't. Um, I try to lead by example and, and encourage people to do it this way. And luckily, um, it's it's a bit in, in our DNA. Of course, when you have something going on or you need to take your you shut your camera off for a second, no problem. I would not come after somebody for doing that. If somebody would never turn their camera on, I would certainly want to ask why, because I do think that seeing faces is important. Now, it's important to keep in mind that you can also have too much of that. So mm-hmm. I'm a big fan, for example, of just phone calls for some for certain types of meetings or walking meetings where you don't have to turn your camera because it's draining over time. So uh, many people have certainly complained of feeling zoomed out, whether you <laughs> use Zoom or not. Uh, how do you try to ensure that you don't have too many meetings? Uh, how, how many meetings is a good number of meetings to have? <laughs> That's a good question. I think... There's, there's no perfect number and it very much depends on um, how many people you lead and if, you, if you're a lead of leads, so to say, right? If you're a manager of managers. Um, I, I think that you want to minimize meeting as mu- meetings as much as possible, especially as a remote-first company. I think it's quick to try to solve problems with meetings, but reality is that if you have people working around the world in different time zones, that is not scalable. If you're a local company and your whole company fits into one office, different situation. Getting into a room, hashing things out can be immensely powerful. And even sometimes in a remote first company, you have to huddle together. You have to have an ad hoc meeting. You have to get that. That is, it is something that is not always avoidable. However, I think there's a certain laziness that creeps up into companies where they say, hey, let's, let's just get on a call and talk it out. Mm. And that's okay if you, you know, if you are an individual contributor. You want to talk with another individual contributor to overcome a problem. It doesn't really work out when you manage a team of, say, 20, 30, 40, 50 people or more. That's when you always have five people who want to quickly get on a call to hash things out or to talk something through. And that's when you have to create a culture of asynchronous work, right? Where, okay, maybe we start with a one-pager and a Google Doc, and let's comment on that. Let's, let's give ourselves time to read it on our own time. Uh, and let's see if maybe by by forcing ourselves to be precise and explicit, maybe we can you know squench out ninety percent of the unclarity that that's actually uh, that we actually try to kill with a meeting. 
So where do you learn your leadership skills? Yeah, that's a, such a good question. Uh, I think there are three good sources. Um, I Maybe four. Uh, one of them is certainly books. I've been reading quite a lot of books um, about leadership and different parts of leadership that have really helped me grasp certain concepts and, and put new tools in my tool belt. The second is application itself, right? You want to learn by applying those tools. The third is with coaches and, and mentors. Um, I actually have a really good experience with executive coaches or leadership coaches uh, who you can talk problems through with. And then fourth is uh, peers or people at other companies who are in similar situations who you can talk to about certain leadership problems. And I think applying these four different ways to learn at the same time has been the most helpful for me and, and, and shown, shown to be really effective. So you say coaches and mentors. Is that something that organizations that you've worked in have paid for? Or is this something that you've actually proactively seeked yourself? Yeah, I was very lucky at uh, uh, to, to have uh, coaches that the company paid for, both at Shopify and at G2, where I worked previously. In fact, at G2, you know, and I really have to, to thank the CEO, Godard Abel, for that. He introduced me to this idea of conscious leadership. And he knows the value of coaching, just like the, my current CEO, Toby Lutke, also a huge fan of coaching. In fact, we have a whole coaching organization within Shopify. So these are these are full-time employed coaches at Shopify um, that, that that help. And uh, but yeah, coming back to G2, uh, Godard was really recognizing the value of coaching and paid for um, executive coaches to help us and to teach us this idea of conscious leadership, which is really embraced in the leadership organization at G2. And in similar types, we do have our own leadership philosophy at Shopify. And I think it made all the difference in the world. Okay. And you also mentioned books and tools there. It'd be great to get one or two specific recommendations from you. What, I mean, what's one or two leadership books that you'd particularly recommend? Yeah, I think, you know, my, my, my leadership Bible is um, the book, The 15 Commitments of Conscious Leadership by Jim Dethmer. It's an absolutely outstanding collection of different principles that help with leadership. And it's, it's, not, it's more about the context than the content. So it doesn't teach you how to have the best one-on-ones, how to define a vision, how to come up with a roadmap. It much more helps you with the the, um, the the connective tissue that you build between you and your leaders, also between you and yourself, how to cope with the stress that leadership comes with and all these things. Uh, it's a, it's an amazing experience. I can, I can recommend everybody to check it out. They also have a, a free um, uh, uh, um, collection of materials on their website, uh, just Google Conscious Leadership, and you'll find that, and they have all the 15 commitments out there. They have a couple of uh, videos and guided med- uh, meditations. Uh, so it's, it's, it's very open source, so to say. And uh, again, there, there's so many deep lessons in this, uh, in this book and the philosophy that it will probably take many, many months of recordings to, to bring all that to light. But I can strongly recommend checking that out. Great resource, I'm sure. So you also mentioned one-on-ones there as well. Uh, when I was in, uh, a manager in various organizations, um, I had um, one-on-ones with my team on a weekly basis, and I found that to be really effective. Um, what kind of frequency do you recommend for one-on-ones, and what should an ideal one-on-one meeting look like? Yeah, the, the first question to actually answer is what type of one-on-one do you need and want to have? So I have a weekly one-on-one with my direct reports for uh, 45 minutes which are mostly 
about short-term priorities and status updates. How is this project doing? How, what do we do about that problem? What do you think about this? Uh, and what are your top three priorities in the in the moment, in the short term? There are other there are other one-on-ones as well. Um, there, are, there are developmental one-on-ones where the only thing you talk about is how to build skills for a direct report, how to bring a direct report to the next level, career development, and have these about um, ranging anywhere from uh, one to three times a quarter. And that's the only thing that we're talking about. You know, It's really important to separate one-on-ones like that. And then sometimes I have a more personal one-on-one, which means that when I realize that at the beginning of the one-on-one that there's something really bothering the other person or that just not present in the moment, or, you know, sometimes you can just tell by the face of people or the way they talk. That's when I'm like, okay, let's, let's, let's throw the agenda out of the board. Like, tell me what's up. What, what are you going through? What's happening? What are you struggling with? What, you know, what do you feel in the moment? Um, and I have found those one-on-ones to be the most impactful because it really helps you to to um, to help your direct report, right? Which at the end of the day, as a manager, is, is one of your responsibilities. Um, also develop more empathy and really understand what they're going through, what bothers them, and also uncover some deeply rooted issues. And those, those are the kind of problems where when you solve one problem, you actually solve a thousand. So the, the type uh, is important and that the type de- uh, defines the frequency um, and the frequency then is more a means to an end. Great, great. It's certainly wonderful when you build up enough trust with people that they're willing to have a very personal conversation with you about their immediate concerns and and and, and personal issues. How do you go about building up that trust? Is it just a case of being a leader that's there all the time, that's demonstrating your industry knowledge, or do you have other tips that you can share in relation to building up trust? Yeah, tr- trust is the most important and fuzzy concept in leadership. It, there are two fantastic books that really drilled the concept of trust into my brain. The one is Good to Great from Jim Collins. The other one is um, Certain to Win by Chet Richards. And both books make the point that trust is absolutely important. And it is important because it helps you basically operate with more implicit understanding than explicit understanding. And so what I mean is that if you imagine a soccer team, we just had the Euro Cup, um, and um, it made me think a lot about teams and how great teams operate. And the one thing you'll see is, I mean, in soccer, you don't have time to really communicate uh, during the actual um, attack or defense, right? You cannot shout over, you do this, I do that, okay, everybody understood. There's no time for that. The decisions happen within milliseconds. And so what the greatest teams have is what we call in German Fingerspitzengefühl. And what we could what we could translate loosely into the feeling at the tip of your fingers. And it means this like intuitive understanding where you you know what the right thing to do is subconsciously or unconsciously, right? And, and greatest teams, they all un, uh, they all intuitively know what the right thing to do is. And that's powerful because, first of all, everybody's on the same page. And second, you don't need to spend a lot of time bringing everybody on the same page or communicating. You know, you can make the right decisions in the moment, get everybody on the same page, move in the same direction. And that's why trust is so powerful. And you shape it in several ways, right? The first thing is trust takes time. You need to, to prove that, you know, you, you, you do what you say 
that, uh, you know, you're not a threat, quote unquote, to people, especially when you inherit a team or you start with a new team. Um, so there's, there is a proving yourself over time and time again that fosters trust. There is also this um, uh, uh, point about just spending time together outside of a work context. So I'm a big fan of social hours or social gatherings where we play or we just talk about something that is not work um, to foster that social glue. And then I think a lot of trust comes from just building a relationship with the individuals, not just you and your direct report, but the direct reports between each other. Um, at Shopify, we have this concept of the trust battery, which gets can, can get charged or uncharged based on what you do. And there are many things that charge a trust battery, like doing what you say, like you know being on the same page, um, even you know bringing up doubts and challenging ideas. That can also charge a trust battery because you know that the other person doesn't just say yes to everything you say. So there, there are many ways to build trust. I do think in a remote world, you have to be way more intentional about building trust because you can't just pull somebody by the arm and be like, hey, let's let's go have a drink after work and, and talk about life. Um, and I think still, it's it's one of the most important things that you can and have to do as a leader for your team. Do you think you can ever get to the same levels of trust for a completely remote team? Or is it always going to be slightly easier and better to have a face-to-face -face team to develop that close relationship with? It is possible, but it will take longer. I think you can, maybe within a week of face-to-face -face time, probably build the, the, the amount of trust that it would take you maybe three months to build within the team. And of course, these, these you know time periods are very arbitrary. Um, but I've, I, I made the experience in the past that like a very well-planned offsite that doesn't just revolve around work can build more trust than three months of, of activities online. That's that's reality. Um, and um, I think not everybody can choose to do that. But when you look at companies that started remotely, and I'm not talking about companies that decided to go remote when the pandemic broke out. I'm speaking about companies that, that started remotely, like Automatic, for example, the makers of WordPress, they all have at least a yearly gathering where they fly everybody in and they only focus on building that social glue. So I think there is something that's still very difficult to replace in the workspace that builds trust and, and that is the face-to-face -face interaction. But we have to find better ways to build trust. You know, I, I think it's, it's, it's lazy to say, oh, well, it's just not the same, so we don't try. So it certainly sounds like you've worked very hard on leadership and um, have some wonderful leadership skills. But if you work in a big organization, if you've got a very big team underneath you, you can't do everything yourself. So how do you foster a culture of great leadership within your organization? Yeah, it's it's such a good point. You know, I think that your team as a leader is an extension of yourself and you ultimately carry the responsibility. So I'm actually not a fan of this like classic hierarchy pyramid where the leader is on top. Mm -hmm. I much more think about the inverted pyramid where the leader is quote unquote the servant of his leaders and his teams, right? There's a certain aspect of 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 uh, service that you have to fulfill as leader. And um I think setting the right examples is a huge driver of the culture of your teams. A, a very simple example is that, you know, um, at, at Shopify, when I started to publicly state that I'm going to take a vacation and I'm going to be off, I got 50, re oh, 50, but like, you know, a lot of requests 
for vacations. Because now people understood, okay, it's it's okay to take a vacation. It's right. okay to take to take time off. Um, so leading by example, so 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 important. Understanding people on a deeper level. I'm a big fan of the Enneagram, which is uh, something like a personality test. Um, but instead of telling you what you do well, it it goes back to your motivators. It goes back to your childhood. Of it goes back to um, how you were shown love and and how that motivated you to be a certain way. It's actually, you know, I don't want to be too, I want to don't want to go too deep down that rabbit hole, but there's a lot of that in the workplace. And it's a lot about how people show up, whether they show up as themselves and whether you as a leader can understand who you work with on a deeper level. And so I'm, I'm very big on understanding that, um, sharing that. And then there are a couple of other like tactics or tools that, that you can pull from. One is to um, to to praise publicly but criticize personally. So I, for example, I never call somebody out in a meeting and, and give them constructive feedback right there because it can be very off-putting in, 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 a, in a group setting. Um, that's one way that also fosters trust. Um, and then again, setting the right standards, right? Like uh, when you are in a, in a group setting or even just in a meeting with your staff, you know, how you like, quote unquote, what you let go through, what you accept as a, as a level of quality also sets the tone very much um, in, in terms of your cultural standards. And then the last one that I, that I maybe want to bring up is um, this idea of ownership. Um, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm not a big fan of micromanaging. I, ha- I will do it if I have to, but I'm a big fan of helping people understand what they're responsible for and what the expectations are. And that is uh, another way to foster trust because it gives people an idea of where they are in the moment. So when you tell people, hey, you are responsible for the project, that is the outcome that I expect, go. That is very empowering to people, shows them that you trust them. And yet at the same time, um, you, you save yourself from having you know, to, to micromanage too much. Now, you can check in from time to time to see like, how is it going? Where, where do you need help? And that is a, a leadership process in, in of itself to teach and educate people that when things go wrong to escalate early and often. But that simple act of empowerment goes a really long way to build a leadership culture. So two quick questions to finish off this section, and they're both related. So I'll ask them both at the same time. You've got a very strong background in SEO, so it probably makes this question quite appropriate. So can a good practitioner become a good leader? And um, also in relation to that, Is it possible to continually grow as a leader and at the same time stay cutting edge with your knowledge of digital marketing? Yes and yes. I think a good (laughs) digital contributor is a quick quick answer. (laughs) (laughs) On to the next one. Uh, No, just kidding, of course. To to elaborate a little bit on that, um, a good IC, a good individual contributor can absolutely become a good leader, but there is one classic challenge that they have to overcome. And that is the fallacy of trying to do everything yourself. I see it almost every time. You have this really strong performer. And because they are so strong, they're often being um, promoted to a leader, which you know, is arguable if that's, if that's the best way to, to create leaders because in a, in a, in a sense, you, you then cut off your strongest leg. But that's the reality of how it often goes. And so the first thing that this leader tries to do is everything themselves. And that is also the harsh awakening that they go through because they realize they can't do everything themselves. They cannot micromanage, take on all the projects. You know, they have to learn to delegate, 
to trust and to set clean agreements. Clean agreements basically means who does what by when. It's very straightforward. And it's also the most violated um, aspect of communication in the workplace. Either because we, we, we think we come, across, uh, we come across harsh when we give kind of, uh, when we make clean agreements or we're scared that the other, that the counterpart or, the, or our direct report um, is not on board. You know, we're scared of conflict. But clean agreements are absolutely crucial for being on the same page and learning how to negotiate that in a, in a way that is not threatening. That is a skill that most individual contributors have to develop. So this whole idea of delegating, leveraging your team, not in, a, not in an abusive way, but like making use of your team. That is, that is something that you have to learn. I had to learn it myself. I did not understand it at first. Um, and, and so I think, that, I think that's, that's the challenge that every individual contributor has to overcome. When it comes to staying cutting edge, I think it's also possible. I think the, 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 the thing you have to come to terms with is that you cannot do everything yourself because there was a time when you, know, you were promoted from an individual, individual contributor and it was probably because you were cutting edge, because you were really good. And that's a very satisfying feeling because you get the job done yourself. As a leader, you can still stay cutting edge, but you have to learn from your individual contributors. That's how you stay cutting edge. And the tricky part is that it wasn't you who came up with the idea or you who executed on the idea. And that makes some leaders feel like a fraud. But I think that's totally fine. You know, like there's no, I think the idea or the concept of having an original idea or being the only innovator is pretty flawed anyway. So by making sure you give credit where credit is due, I think you can still share cutting edge ideas. You can still be cutting edge. And also, if you don't feel like your team is cutting edge, might be a good red flag to investigate why that is. And, and if there's a problem that or, or something that you might, might want to change. Great stuff. I like your thoughts on actually it saying it's fine to learn from your team as well. And you can actually say to your team, um, it's your responsibility to help to keep me cutting edge as well and just um, get them all involved and get them fired up by doing that. I love that perspective. Uh, I tell you what, let's segue to part two of our discussion. So it's now time for Kevin's thoughts on the state of digital marketing today. So starting off with... Secret software. So Kevin, share a lesser known MarTech tool that's bringing you a lot of value at the moment and why that tool is important for you. It's hard to say if it's lesser known, but I had a lot of joy working with Airtable. Airtable is basically a connected database slash document software. It's something like, like Excel on steroids. And I learned about a framework for experimentation velocity, which is really important in growth um, from Darius Contractor. Um, I think he worked at Dropbox, if I'm not mistaken. Um, and I adapted that framework to my own SEO experimentation framework. And I learned that through Airtable, and, and, and Airtable allows you to execute that pretty well. The, what I love about it is it allows you to, it, it, it creates real-time reports right next to your data. There's almost like a dashboard with an Excel attached to it. It's a very cool um, experience and a very great tool. You can also share all your reports and databases. Uh, so that's one that I would call out. Great. Well, we haven't had that recommendation before, so it's always good to, to have a new one. So moving on from something that you currently use to something that you're going to use, that that is... Next on the list. So what's one marketing activity or tool that you haven't tried yet, but you want to test soon? You know, it's, it's, it's probably a bit of a cop-out, but uh, we built most tools ourselves at Shopify. 
Uh, and we're putting together um, a whole suite of SEO tools that I'm really, really pumped and really excited to try out. Um, if I, you know, if I, if I had to give another example, there is a task management tool called MIM, M-I-M, uh, that seems really interesting. I'm on the wait list right now um, that I'm really interested to, to test out. I, I still think that, you know, there's room for growth in the task management world. That tool seems to do some things pretty right. So uh, besides the cop-out, that's the one that I would call out. <laughs> well, it's always good to have a cop-out as well, but um, it, it's nice to have the the second option as well. I think the challenge with developing tools in-house is sometimes they take longer than you intended. Sometimes they don't become priority. And then individual departments, I guess, can become frustrated. Uh, I've certainly worked in larger larger organisations that do their own things, but I've wanted to use external tools because... I, I thought they had more functionality. Have you ever had that conundrum where you've you've kind of been tied to internal tools, but you wanted to use external ones? Luckily, not yet, um, but I can totally see that. And so the philosophy that, that I'm following is that it's okay to build an internal tool, but it has to provide the functionality of a third-party tool. And if it doesn't have that, then you need to use the third-party party tool until they are both on par and then you can take your own tool to the next level so uh, i do i do see the same risk in being too tied to internal tools absolutely um, okay well let's move on to the this or that round so this is the quick response round 10 quick questions just two rows here try not to think about the answer too much and you're only allowed to say the word both on one occasion so use it wisely are you ready okay yes <laughs> tiktok or twitter Twitter. Facebook or LinkedIn? LinkedIn. YouTube or podcast? YouTube. Traffic or leads? Leads. Paid search or SEO? SEO. (laughs) Ads or influencers? Influencers. Google ads or Facebook ads? Facebook ads. Email marketing or chat marketing? Email marketing. Martech stack or all-in-one platform? Martech stack. One-to-one or scale? Both. (laughs) You you saved your boat at the very end, but you certainly got there as well. Um, I'll tell you what, for the previous episode, I interviewed Eli Schwartz, and he said both for paid search and SEO, but uh, you seem to think, no, it's definitely SEO. So is, is SEO used for all parts of the funnel from your perspective and is it always better than paid search no no i do see a lot of value in paid search i think it's really important and i, th- I do also think that seo as, as seos we uh we're too fixated on seo itself and and diminish the value of paid search too often i think there's a lot of value in it i think the two also go hand in hand they're siblings they are related they should work together um and um there's no, there shouldn't be a this or that. I mean, of course, for the show is very valuable, right? Like for the conversation, absolutely. Within a company, I don't think you have to choose or should choose. Um, I think they come with different um, ways to scale, right? There is a a formula to decide which one makes more sense. Um, it depends a little bit on on your sales, like how you sell, what channels you have, what the product looks like, right? For example. Um, not every time can you use a, a paid model um, because the customer acquisition cost would be higher than the lifetime value of customer. You know, there, there are ways to go down the rabbit hole, but generally, yeah, we dismiss uh, paid search way too often as SEOs, and I think there's a lot of value in it. 
Yeah, absolutely. And obviously this round, the this or that round, is perhaps black and white, but it's, it's, it's a bit... Um, it's a bit amusing as well. It's not intended to be um, completely definitive. And for me, it's a useful way of just getting a feel for whether or not um, your initial reaction says something unexpected to me. And it's a good way of just diving deeper into one answer. So I, I find it I find it useful, but not black and white. Absolutely. <laughs> Let's move on to the $10,000 question. If I were to give you $10,000 and you had to spend it over the next few days on a single thing to grow your business, I know it's not much for Spotify, but just play with me here. What would you spend it on and how would you measure success? Probably influencers, to be honest. Um, and I think I think this is a very broad term for things that for, for a lot of different things. But I do think that in today's world, that is that has such a high emphasis on trust and where it's so difficult sometimes to break trust, I think a person that people listen to em endorsing a product in an authentic way goes, I think that's almost unbeatable today, right? That goes, that it combines all the best things that, that you know, it's, it's, it's like a very inboundy type of way. It comes with a ton of trust. It might make people wear a product that they previously didn't know that they wanted. Um, and I think it's very scalable, of course, based on the audience. So not sure if I would put all the $10,000 into the same influencer. I think I might spread that out a little bit to create some sort of a buzz or the, the illusion of, uh, you know, of a, of a wave. But um, I think there is something to this whole context of influencer marketing. Great. Okay. Well, the, the lovely thing about working for a big um, e-commerce firm, if you can call it that, like, Shopify is that um, you've got a massive database of customers, you know which customers you have have been with you for a while, are using your proposition extremely actively, and which ones are most active and have the most followers on social media. So you can immediately pinpoint who would be the best influence, influencers for you. What, what would be your process for identifying which influencers to target and to, to hopefully use in your campaign? Um, I think there's a. I want to like try to coin another term, but I think there's there's probably something like an like an influencer product fit, where an influencer creates material that's in line with your product, where, where product like natively or or naturally fits into their narrative as well, right? And so what I mean is, if you have an influencer, for example, who does tech reviews and you have a tech product, makes perfect sense. If they do tech reviews and you want them to review a hotel might be a bit of a stretch, right? Like sometimes mm. you see that when, when influencers try to endorse a, pro a product that just doesn't fit and they try to make it happen somehow and it's really awkward in the moment. Uh, so there, there's like that that you want to pay attention to. Um, and you also want to think about their audience. You know, is the audience big enough? Do you have the, do they have the right kind of audience? Um, and how does that fit to your product? Or have you maybe already captured a large chunk of their audience and just want to, there's, there's different reasons for why you, work, why you want to work with them. Um, in the same realms, I think it's really important to measure the bottom line impact. So it's nice to measure eyeballs or you know page views or something like that, or even clicks. But at the end of the day, you really want to be focused on how much money did that make? You know, how much, how much, how many products did I sell through that influencer campaign? Great advice. Well, to finish off, let's shift the focus to someone else who deserves it. So that is a magical marketer. So who's an up and coming marketer that you'd like to give a shout out to? What can we learn from them and where can we find them? Man, that's such a tough question because there's so many um, 
cool people that are that are on the come up and so many um so many smart people out there um i would say you know i, I really want to make sure that i that i pick somebody um with a diverse background uh that's that's important to me and so let me quickly look up her name uh, i think she does a really cool job in um hitting the the overlap uh, between e-commerce and seo her name is christina azarenko um she's a uh, seo consultant and coach uh, and i think people can learn quite a lot from her superb stuff um i think i've had um christina on a webinar in the past actually she's from toronto doesn't she isn't she that's correct. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely wonderful. I'll tell you what, she's doing a great job on LinkedIn as well. Uh, she's just getting so much interaction with the, the the posts that she makes. So she's doing a wonderful job. Yes, absolutely. So uh, yeah, and, and but that that is to say, there are so many great people out there. Um, it's <laughs> and it's, it's it's always awesome to see. Like in marketing, you know, I feel like especially digital marketing, we have like a constant. I don't know, like a constant wave of new people coming up. Um, mm. And it, it really does add to our craft. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's tricky to pick someone, but um, it's nice to give someone a shout out as well. So <laughs> there we go. This was episode 255 of Digital Marketing Radio, where Kevin and Dig from, from Spotify shared some incredible advice about leadership. Specific tips in, in, included the fact that he learned le leadership advice in books, the 15 commitments of conscious leadership, um, various tools, coaches, men mentors, peers. Um, you also offered advice to limit the number of meetings. Uh, you tend to have 45-minute one-on-ones. You have weekly tactical and a minimum of once a quarter developmental one-on-ones and ad hoc one-on-ones as well. If people are maybe looking a little bit down, be aware of the individual. Uh, in terms of um, developing trust, you recommended a couple of books for that as well. Good to great and certain to win. Your secret software was Airtable and your next on the list was a, Spot uh, a, a, a Shopify tool. I'll tell you what, I wrote Spotify down. <laughs> but it's, it's <laughs> Shopify tool, absolutely. And also uh, MIM task management as well. And your magical marketer was Christina Ozarenko. Um, Kevin, uh, what's the best social platform for someone to follow you and say hi? Thanks so much. I'm very active on Twitter. It's at Kevin underscore Indic. My DMs are open, so feel free to pop in and say hi. Absolutely superb. Well, thanks so much for coming on. I've been your host, David Bain. You can also find me producing podcasts for B2B brands over at castingcred.com. Until we meet again, stay hungry, stay foolish, and stay subscribed. Aloha. DigitalMarketingRadio.com DigitalMarketingRadio.com DigitalMarketingRadio DigitalMarketingRadio DigitalMarketingRadio.com Digital